Good afternoon and Merry Christmas to all of you. I am uh, Pete, I'm a pastor from Church of the Cross. Uh, glad to get to spend um, Christmas Eve this year with you, your first Christmas Eve here is your, with your permanent home. Uh, pastor Rick had really wanted to preach tonight, you know, but with baby John just around the corner and things, some of us kind of wrangled him to the ground and was like, you can't share the wealth. So here I am for that. Um, anyway, uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much um, for this church and all that you've done for restoration. Um, thank you so much for this night. I want to remember all you've done for the whole world in Jesus Christ. Uh, be with us and, and bless us as we consider further uh, your word and, and your great gifts. Amen. So as I was considering the, the various passages of scripture that we were using tonight, um, I was struck by the language of, of light and darkness that's used surprisingly frequently in these readings and a whole bunch of other readings for things around the birth of Jesus, really. So I ended up thinking of what that means. And of course, some of it's not that complicated, right? Light versus darkness always brings the idea of things like good versus evil or righteousness over against sin or holiness against unholiness, I guess. Uh, but what's stayed with me especially about all this um, is it's about hope in these readings especially. The texts are all pointing us to hope. Even in the darkness, the light will come. Even in the hardest times, there is always hope. I think that's truly one of the biggest challenges of Christmas. Uh, we celebrate the birth of Jesus. It's meant to be a time of great joy, but it always comes amidst so much darkness. Either that's darkness in our own lives, so we have troubles at home with our health or family health, maybe the loss of a loved one, or just struggles at work or in our community, or then just it's in the broader world around us that seems so hard and so dark sometimes. And especially over the last two years, we have just seen a lot of darkness that most of us never really expected before. So how is it we hold on to joy and to hope? Even more, why does this simple, almost idyllic story of the birth of this baby offer any reason for hope in our lives? Why should we find hope in Christmas? As I was pondering this, I remembered a story uh, about Henry Longfellow that summed this up for me. I'm sure many of us are familiar with the Christmas Carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It actually began as a poem that was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Um, it actually came out of a very conflicted and hard time in his life. He was one of those rare poets and artists who's actually recognized in his own time. He was quite famous. Um, so, so much of his life was going smoothly, well, maybe better than well. And then a few years before he wrote this poem, his wife died in a tragic accident at home. And right around that time was when the American Civil War started. And actually after his wife's death, uh, his son really wanted to enlist with the Union and, and Longfellow kept trying to keep him home. He couldn't bear the thought of possibly losing him too, but his son snuck away and enlisted anyway. And then it was in early December of 1863, about eight months after he left home, he did return home. He came home alive, but greatly wounded. And then it was perhaps even Christmas Day of that year that Longfellow sat down and he wrote this poem. It begins with simple, joyful thoughts about the bells on Christmas Day. This is the part we're most familiar with. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I wish we had bells like that still on Christmas chiming. That'd be so amazing. So for a few stanzas, this joyful thinking continues. 
It's about the beauty of this message, how it's spread across the world. The bells can be heard all around the world, and we can think of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then the poem turns from the beauty of those bells and moves to the darkness that can seem so overwhelming. The cannons coming from the south, the way the Civil War was destroying homes and not just buildings, whole families and lives, and how this was drowning out those Christmas bells for him. How can those joyous bells be heard over such grief, sorrow, and loss? And then in the second to last stanza, following these ideas through, Longfellow just universalizes all the struggles to the world in general. He kind of cries out with anguish, and he says, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You fear him, feel him asking and struggling with just how can this proclamation of peace on earth and goodwill to men, how does it really stand in the face of the evil that we know, that we see so much around us? But then Longfellow doesn't actually end there. And in the last stanza of the poem, he comes to a really beautiful conclusion. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Somehow, even in the face of so much pain and sorrow in his own life, looking at the darkness in the world around him, Longfellow still was able to hold on to the deep meaning of those Christmas bells, of the Christmas story here. God is not dead, he's not sleeping. He will act and right will come. Peace and goodwill are assured. So how do we, how do we hold on to that assurance as Christians? How do we see such certain hope in this newborn baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Of course, it doesn't work if it's just a cute story we only think about on Christmas. If we're going to find hope here, we have to take this story seriously. And also within this story, then, we have to be able to recognize God at work, see what he's done. We need to be reminded by the story about who God really is, what he's all about, and then we can begin to be able to put our hope in him, get hope from him. So as we think about the story, it's actually helpful um, first to kind of take a step back from the immediate moment and just think about all what's going on around it. Now, it might be true that Jesus was born on a peaceful and quiet night, like the songs say, but it was not a peaceful time in the world or in Israel. Israel was occupied by a foreign force. There were off and on rebellions and suffering in the face of these Roman occupiers. Even Mary and Joseph, they were only in Bethlehem because they had to follow the kind of capricious whim of the faraway emperor, Caesar. They had to go there. And then their leaders closer to home were very often corrupt and vicious, like Herod. So the regular people were often used and abused. And on top of that, Jesus' own family had their own added struggles with this. They were not only poor, but they were also from the wrong part of the country. So they were marginalized and looked down upon even within their own marginalized people. And then the people of Israel, they told a story among themselves. They told it for a very long time that they had been chosen by God. They were meant for God's bigger purpose in the world. They were meant as a light for the nations. They were intended to be bearers of God's blessing to the world. But they'd been waiting for anything like that to happen among them. They'd been waiting for God to act, to bring changes to their circumstances for centuries. And in that long waiting, it often felt like they'd been completely forgotten by God or even rejected by him. Many could not understand what God was doing. There were such horrible things happening around them. Many lost their faith during that time. But there were others who still held on. 
They kept longing for a new work of God. They were expecting that God would restore his people and would renew the world. So they kept waiting and waiting and waiting. This is important for us. The Christmas story doesn't start out in some perfect world, but it's in one very much like our modern world, filled with violence and hatred, so much sorrow and death. But then, finally, in all of that darkness, of course, God does act. He acts again, really. He does respond to all the needs and cries of his people, to the deepest needs of the whole world. But what he does, he does so in a way that's totally unexpected. By choosing the poor, young virgin, Mary of Nazareth, she would bear a son, a son who was given for the life of the world. Actually, God sending a baby in these miraculous circumstances, that's not exactly new for him. Uh, he's acted in that way quite a few times before. We can think of Abraham and Sarah having their son Isaac in their old age, Abraham being 100, Sarah being 90. We can think of the birth of Samuel, or even Jesus' cousin John the Baptist, born, born to Zechariah, um, and Elizabeth in their old age. This is almost a trademark of God's actions in Scripture that he sends a child in such miraculous ways. So instead, what's really unexpected about this baby was who the baby was. Jesus wasn't just another human baby, born like so many others. Jesus was Lord. He was the Word made flesh. He was God incarnate. And so with the birth of Jesus, God uniquely and completely enters into our world. The all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing creator of all things enters fully into the world that he had created. I have to remember again, of course, it's not the way he created it. He created the world perfect and holy, full of life and light. But when he enters it, as that baby, it was fallen, full of darkness, sin, evil, and death. But he came anyway. He would not stay separated from us. And we weren't going to close that gap, so Jesus did. He didn't have to. Jesus could have stayed back, just been content to judge the world and sin in the world, just leave us to our own devices. But he didn't. He came. He entered right into this mess with us, right into our darkness, because he would make things right. It's not just that Jesus came, though. He came as one of us. Jesus could have come in so many ways, perhaps like, like an angel, something like an angel, or some magnificent being descending from heaven that we all could have gazed upon and wonder. That wouldn't have resolved anything. There would still be distance. We'd still have all the same problems. So Jesus came as a human. He was fully God, and he came down also as fully human. Martin Luther, one of the um, really important uh, reformers of the church, marveled about this. He said... Jesus condescends to assume my flesh and blood, my body and soul. Jesus came in our flesh and blood, in a body just like ours. He truly came as one of us. Even more than that, he actually came as one of the least of us. So throughout Jesus' life, he experienced the things that we do. Often, he actually experienced many things that most of us don't have to experience. So Jesus knew what it was to be desperately hungry and thirsty. He knew what it was to be physically and emotionally exhausted. He knew working for just enough money to get by. He knew exclusion and racism, sorrow and fear. Jesus was sinned against. He knew what real evil looked like. But he came. He experienced all of this in order to be with us. And as we say that, we have to remember, we don't mean that in just like a sentimental way. It wasn't just that he was trying to be near those he loved. 
By becoming like us, Jesus made it possible for us to become like him. Jesus took our flesh and blood so that throughout his life, he could fight against sin, evil, and death. He would not just experience those things, he would war against them until finally, through his own death, sin and evil would be fully judged and defeated. And then by his resurrection, death would die. Jesus defeated our enemies for us, as one of us, so that we could be united to his life, to his divine life. Now we can be not just with Jesus, but we can be in Jesus. When we are in him, we are new creation. We're joined to his life, death, resurrection, even his ascension at God's right hand, so that we know now new life in him. Even in this world, we have that new life. This is our Christmas hope, that God would not let the darkness last, but came as our light, came as one of us to redeem us, to be with us, to give us his own life. And then the world is still a dark place. Though there are still so many things wrong, we have hope, not just for life now, but we have hope for life and light for all eternity. Because Jesus, who came once as a baby to enter into our lives, will come again as our judge. And he will put away sin and death. And he will give to his people unending, resurrected life in him. Because of all of this, Christ is our light in the darkness. He is our hope for new life now and new life forever. He gives us hope that evil will fail, the right shall prevail, and we will have peace not only with each other, but even full, ultimate peace with God himself. All this, however, as we think about it, it's big and beautiful. It needs to be more, though, than something that we only remember on Christmas. To actually have the kind of deep foundational hope that we need in this life, that we are offered in all that Christ has done, we need the Christmas story, that Jesus is our Emmanuel, that he's God with us. We need that every day. We can't just look to it rarely. We can't just look to it on Christmas. We must constantly, we must constantly turn again to the great light in the darkness. I was reminded recently of um, my oldest son, Corin's first school choir concert. Uh, it happened a few years ago when he was in kindergarten. I don't remember the music or anything like that. Um, I remember what Corin did throughout that concert. Uh, right away, as he looked out at the crowd, he found my wife and I. And of course, then he was so excited and smiling and waving and so happy to have us there. And then throughout the concert, you know, he, he participated in his way. Kindergartners are, you know, amusing in those contexts about how well they actually managed to participate. So sometimes you'd see him kind of looking around and just taking things in, or sometimes he'd be really caught off guard by the music. There was a big pipe organ that they didn't get to practice with before. So when that would pop in, the younger kids especially would jump and be surprised. Um, and you know, the whole time, he's very expressive, thankfully. Um, we get to watch my wife and I, Liz and I, and we'd see all these emotions going through his face. Confusion, boredom, um, fear, overwhelms, and then, he would look at us again, and he would smile so big, and he'd kind of calm, and everything was fine, and he'd go back to singing, occasionally singing. After the concert, I remember he told us, he said, well, I knew where you were, so I would look to you whenever I needed. That, for me, it stood out, it still stands out, as an example for how I want to look to Jesus. I want to so regularly turn to him and see again 
Whenever I feel confused or lost, whenever I'm hit with the darkness in this world, sorrow, sickness, hate, violence, more than that, I want to turn to Jesus, our light, to remember, to see again what he has done, to know again his great love and be filled with this hope and joy, the assurance that I could see on my son's face that night. That's what I need. And that is what Jesus is offering us as our light. So tonight as we continue, look to Christ and find your hope. You can do it for the first time tonight. You can do it for the thousandth time or more. And then keep turning to Christ. Keep finding in him that true hope, true joy, and true life. Let us pray. Christ, we thank you that you are our light and life, that you came as that little baby to be like us, um, to save us. I ask that you fill us um, with a deeper longing and deeper love for you. I ask that you help us always to turn, to see you, to remember. Um, fill us with this unshakable hope that comes from everything you've done for us, Lord. Amen.